Amen. Amen. Uh, wow, Matt, thank you so much. Give it up, guys. Man, fantastic job. Fantastic job. Um, like, it's okay. I keep on, uh, as I've like, kind of started over here at Redeemer, I, I kind of come from a background, uh, at least for the past couple years, where we're like striving for uh, multi-ethnicity um, in the church. And um, as you can see, if you uh, look across, we're not very multi-ethnic, and it's going to be really hard for us to become a multi-ethnic congregation if every worship service we have looks like a funeral. So, you know, it's really, it's okay for us to like, you know, just, uh, you know, break loose the bonds and worship and act like you mean it. Like, that's okay. We, uh, of all people on earth, as Christians, as people who have gone from death to life, uh, as people who have been redeemed uh, by the blood of Jesus, uh, saved to sin no more, should be the most uh, celebratory group on earth right? Uh, and I, I firmly believe that um, if the church did kind of that thing, what it's, it should be doing, celebrating more often, uh, it would be a lot more attractive to the outside world. Amen? Um, so my name is Winmore. So I didn't mean to come out like all, all hot and heavy like that. It just kind of happened. Um, I'm, I'm an absolutely just weird, weird person. Um, one of the people, I don't know uh, if you guys have... Um, in your life, like a Mount Rushmore of human beings, uh, of people who have just impacted your life so much. Uh, one of the biggest figures on my Mount Rushmore of human beings is John Colburn right down here. And this man is so, re so responsible for so much of who I am today. Um, I would encourage you to seek out people like John. John is someone who saw what I did and was able to distinguish the things I do from who I am. And he noticed when I was fake, because when you know someone well enough to be able to distinguish who they are from what they do, um, then you're able to kind of see, man, this person is, is not doing well. Uh, this person is, is acting in a way that's not really according with who they are. And you need to find friends like that. Uh, and tonight, as I'm kind of heading in that direction, uh, this difference between who we are and what we do. Um, and I don't plan on preaching very long. Um, and I'm not going to tell you anything that's revolutionary, but if you could turn your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 4, when we are continuing in our study of the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 4, and it's right there at the tail end, uh, verses 35 to uh, 41, which is uh, a story that's probably common to most of us uh, when Jesus calms a storm. And uh, I'm not going to preach anything like revolutionary. The story really preaches itself. I just kind of want to point out some important things about it. But maybe when you grew up, you heard this story and you heard somebody be like, oh, brother and sister, don't worry. Uh, whenever the storms of life come, Jesus is in your boat. And I don't know why I always default to like a redneck accent whenever I use bad theology. Um, it's probably like an unfair picture for a lot of people. Um, but that's just kind of what I do. So, you know, that's, that's me. Um, yeah, I'm not going to do anything revolutionary tonight. Uh, what I'm um, hoping and praying for is that uh, just the presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit um, by the will of the Father will just be present with us and present with my words. Uh, and so if you will just pray for me and with me really quick, I'd appreciate it. Uh, it's just a simple prayer that I have been taught to pray before I preach. Lord, be with us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear everything that you would have us see and hear. Maybe we may we be compelled by the love of Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Uh, so if you haven't been able to tell already, uh, I'm Wynn and I'm super weird. 
Uh, I grew up, I was born in a little town called Gadsden, Alabama, where um, we have a farm outside of Gadsden. So if you're familiar with that area, we have a farm uh, just east of Gadsden, about 10 miles east of Gadsden in a little place called Hoax Bluff, Alabama. Uh, my mom is from this little town. Uh, if you go further past Gadsden up I-59, and before you get to the Fort Payne exit, you're going to get off on the Collinsville exit, and you're going to head to this little town called Geraldine, Alabama. That's where my mom's from. My dad, if you go south from Gadsden, straight down Highway 431, right before you get to I-20, he's from a little place outside of Anniston called Ohatchee. All right, and so from Geraldine, Ohatchee, you get like me, and now we're the family that made it to the big thriving metropolis of Birmingham, Alabama. Um, but I've lived most of my life in Birmingham. Uh, I graduated from Briarwood Christian School in 2011, so go Lions. Um, and then I graduated from the University of Alabama uh, in 2015, and I'm currently a third year student at Beeson Divinity School. Uh, and I'd probably be an outcast. I'd be disowned by Beeson if I didn't mention anything about the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So uh, great. Love that, man. Uh, <laughs> just wanted to say that before John reported it back to Beeson and, and said, man, that wind preached and he didn't even mention that. Um, man, it's great because I know that you people are going to go and your kids are going to ask someday, they'll say, mom and dad, what did you even do on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation? And you're going to say, oh, I heard this guy named Wynn preach and it was weird. Um, and then I I'm going to get to tell my kids the same thing someday, Lord willing. Um, but I am, part of the reason why I'm so weird is because I've got three little brothers. Uh, and so I'm the firstborn and both of my parents are youngest siblings. And so, I mean, I, as guinea pig as you could possibly get, that is me. I am the grand Morris experiment in our family. And like wherever they failed with me, you know, they ended up they, by, you know, son number four, you kind of get to a good place. Um, but me and my brothers are so different. Extreme, none of us really look the same. Um, I tell brother number two, his name is Sam. He graduated from Auburn University. He studies forest, he studied forestry and outdoors and that kind of stuff. Uh, loves hunting, hunting and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, I'll get in a tree stand at 5 a.m. when it's 20 degrees every once in a while. Uh, I just haven't done this thing where I, I, I've held a gun and I've shot, you know, guns pretty much all my life. I've seen a lot of deer, but rarely have I ever done that at the same time. And so after a while, it just gets really frustrating. And so I've, I've found better ways to spend time with the Lord. Uh, but Sam loves it. That's great. Uh, he's currently working in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, um, for the city of Montgomery and uh, forestry. Um, Sam is the one that we said was adopted because he's like not, he doesn't have the same body style at us at all. He's got uh, a different, he doesn't have this cowlick that's right here that's present in my other brothers. Uh, but the big kicker is that every Christmas uh, we decorate the Christmas tree and Sam does not have any baby's first Christmas ornaments. Uh, I've got like five of them because I was the firstborn in a small town. So everybody knew me and loved me. I've even got baby's second Christmas ornaments. Uh, that's how special I am. Sam, after years of the tree falling down and stuff, all of his Christmas, uh, baby's first Christmas ornaments have been destroyed. And so we just say that's further proof that we didn't get, that's because you weren't with us on your first Christmas. We didn't get you to you were like four. Um, but so <laughs> that's what we tell Sam. Uh, Jake is even more different. Jake is brother number three in the family and he is uh, the true redhead of our family. Um, he's ended up being the tallest. He's about six feet tall, which is tall for the Morris clan. And um, 
He was the worst infant ever. Oh my gosh. He was born in Montgomery when we lived there for a little while. And anytime he was upset about something, the state of Alabama knew it. Uh, it was just not, man, he would cry every morning. Um, mom would wake him up, bring him into the kitchen. And me and Sam would already be kind of eating breakfast and stuff. And Jake would go, juice, with that face right there. And my mom would say, juice, please. And he'd say, juice, please. And he did that. And then like everyone, he'd walk in and um, the lights would be too bright. And so he'd say, turn down the lights. Uh, turn off the lights, it's too bright. And so me and Sam would look at him and make this squinty face at him. And then he'd cry even more. Um, somehow my mom still loves us, have no idea why. Uh, but then you get to my youngest brother, Gabe. And Gabe might be the most different out of all of us. Gabe is the one who, uh, is a, he's a senior at Briarwood right now. And um, he's looking probably at doing engineering at Mississippi State. Uh, so bow wow those bulldogs. Um, and uh, he, he loves like engineer. He loves science, uh, which none of us, me and Jake and Sam, we're all pretty good at sports. Gabe doesn't really care that much about sports. And so he, he's super book smart, which is beyond me. Uh, I have no idea why he would care about that, but hopefully someday if he becomes an engineer, he can come to my church and start tithing. Um, so that's what the family's all about. Um, but I say all that because we are all extremely different people. And if you just look at the things that me and my brothers do, it would be hard for you to tell who we are as brothers. It would be really hard for you to distinguish, uh, man, like when he went to Alabama, none of us even have gone to the same colleges. Jake uh, plays baseball at Montevallo and he wants to be a, a math teacher and a, and a coach someday. We're all doing diff way different things. And so it would be extremely difficult uh, for you to kind of see what we do and be able to tell kind of who we are from that. And that's really what I, what I think this story is trying to tell us. Um, I call this Batman theology. Uh, I'm also, just to let you know, I studied telecommunication and film in Alabama. I was planning on going to broadcast. I love movies, film, multimedia stuff. So I just reference movies in my sermons. It's awesome. Uh, hey, the gospel and pop culture, gotta have it. Um, I call it Batman theology. Batman Begins came out in like 05. So some of you were like six, seven, eight years old when that came out. Um, I was 14. And I remember even as a 14 year old, I wasn't even saved yet. Um, but there's this moment where um, Bruce Wayne is talking to Rachel Dawes, who at the time was played by Katie Holmes. Um, and like Bruce has kind of become Batman, but he's trying to do this playboy Bruce thing so that people can't tell that he's Batman, but he still is in love with Rachel, but he comes out of this party and he's got models on his arms trying to act like the playboy and Rachel sees this. And so he's like very quick to come up to her and he goes, Hey, um, you know, like I am more than this. I am more. And Rachel responds. Maybe, you know, Rachel responds, Bruce, it's not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. And the first time I heard that, I was like, oh crap, I hope not. <laughs> Man, that would be terrible because I do not do very good things. Uh, as, as a sinner, as a person uh, with sin tendencies, what I do is not always very good at all, especially when I, at that point in my life, before I was saved, nothing I did was really good at all. Um, but anyway, that's, that's where we're going. That's, that was a fantastic intro. Great job, Wynn. Uh, proud of you on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Let's read the text. Um, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with him in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with them. 
And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So man, this is a, just a fantastic story. Um, one that we're all very familiar with. Whenever you read the Bible, I, I hope that like you see some strange things in the Bible and then you kind of pause and you're like, well, that's weird. I need to investigate that because this is a weird section of scripture because as we've studied Mark, I'm gonna kind of go back and just see what we've done with, with Mark so far because Mark, uh, as we know, is um, really kind of geared towards the Roman mind. It is geared towards people of action. It is, it is kind of a very fast-paced story. Um, we see throughout the gospel of Mark, immediately they did this and immediately they went there. And I know you all are dying to know what the word immediately is in Greek. It is euthus. So you can write that down, take that home with you tonight. Euthus, immediately. They kept moving and they just go to a different town and they do different things. And then all of a sudden you come to this story where there's a pause. There's, it's not, this doesn't really push forward the narrative. I mean, let's just go back. Like Mark starts, um, you know, not with a genealogy like Matthew or Luke, the other synoptic gospels. Mark just jumps right into John the Baptist. John the Baptist is doing his ministry and he goes straight from there to the baptism of Jesus. And straight from there, we have temptation. Jesus begins his ministry. He's calling disciples. Uh, straight from there, Jesus is just doing ministry. He is healing people uh, with any sort of disease, sickness, uh, he's healing, he's casting demons out. Uh, the Pharisees are already getting on him because he keeps doing this on the Sabbath. Um, and then they say that he's casting out demons by the power of Satan, of Beelzebul. Um, by the way, not a good move. Uh, some call that the unforgivable sin. So um, yeah, got to be careful with that one. Uh, Jesus, he just keeps going and he's doing all this ministry. Um, he is associating himself with people that the rest of the Israelite culture want nothing to do with. And then we come to this part in the story and it's just so interesting because Jesus um, is, is in the boat and he's asleep, right? So he gets in the boat, he says, hey, we're gonna go to the other side. One of my favorite, favorite passages of scripture, um, which is in the gospels in Mark chapter one, Jesus says, hey, we need to go to the other towns as well. Yeah, people, he was like, he's just alone with his father. He gets up uh, before the sun does and he spends time with his father. And then he comes, you know, out of wherever he was spending time with his father. The disciples roll up to Jesus in Mark chapter one and say, hey, uh, everybody's looking for you. And he's like, yeah, we're gonna go to other towns. That's why I came out here. All right, Jesus is not, um, he's not satisfied with just preaching the gospel in one part of, of Israel, one little section, one little town. And so he's going to a lot of other towns and he keeps doing this. And he does a strange thing in chapter three. Uh, in chapter one, it, it, he note, the Mark notes that uh, Jesus is teaching with a, a different kind of authority than anybody's ever teach, taught with. Uh, Jesus is not referencing uh, anybody. He's not calling on the name of God to give him authority. Jesus just speaks from authority himself. And we'll talk about that. 
All right, and so uh, he, he, he talks about these parables. Dwight did a great job unpacking some of these parables. Um, if you see him, give him a big old hug, pat on the back, congrats, great sermon. Um, and so it really was, it was great. Um, and so Jesus, at the end of preaching some of these parables, has decided, he's, he's preaching parables, the crowds are so big around him, he's got to like, he's not even like at the pulpit anymore. He's standing in a boat in the sea because the crowds are like hard pressed all around. So just for him to have room to like, breathe and talk. He's already in the boat. So at the end of teaching the parables, he, he says on, uh, on that same day when he finished preaching for a long time, um, when the evening had come, he said to them, let us go to the other side. Uh, and so that's what they did. They start heading out to the other side and um, some trouble happens as we know. Uh, and leaving the crowd, uh, there are other boats that were with him uh, and uh, he uh, just kind of fell asleep. Like, and imagine uh, as Jesus, I mean, you've got to be tired. Uh, Aside from the stress, I mean, Jesus isn't hopping in, you know, like a Cadillac and heading down the road to Capernaum. Uh, He's not just perusing the streets of Galilee on a case. He's not even like riding a donkey or a horse and carriage. He's walking on foot. So he's tired, uh, probably has not had a lot to eat, especially since the disciples, uh, one of the one of the areas where they got in trouble was they were walking through a grain field and they like plucked grain off of the wheat and they're just eating that, you know, super healthy. Um, apparently the disciples didn't struggle with gluten. Uh, so I guess they were okay. And uh, they just, they walked through and they're plucking the grains of wheat off of the stems and, uh, and just eating them. The problem is that they were doing that on the Sabbath. The Pharisees didn't like this because they considered that um, plowing, you know, doing work on the Sabbath. Okay, but hey, you know, Jesus is like, hey, my disciples are hungry and we're gonna eat. All right, and uh, so they're very, very hungry, haven't had a lot of rest, and so Jesus just passes out. Jesus just passes out, um, and the crazy thing is, I'm, you know, I try to be as much like Jesus as possible. One of the areas apparently we have in common is that we can sleep through anything. In fact, uh, I've lamented, I've grown up just sleeping with the sound of the radio on, I sleep with the TV on, um, and so someday if I were to get married, I don't know how me and my future spouse would adjust to that, um, but y'all can pray for me. And um, Jesus seems to be okay sleeping through this storm. He's extremely tired. And there's this beautiful little detail here in the story that um, certainly Mark, who received his gospel from Peter, um, you know, he's just asleep on the cushion. He's asleep on the cushion in the stern of the boat. And this great uh, windstorm arises and it causes all these waves. And you have to understand like the Sea of Galilee is not the ocean, okay? Um, it's, you know, a glorified lake. It's not even like the Mediterranean Sea. It's just, uh, it's just a, it's a lake. And um, the problem with the Sea of Galilee is that it's like 700 feet below sea level. And so these huge like wind storms, wind gusts kind of blow down into that bowl and just create all sorts of havoc. Um, also, Jesus is not uh, on, you know, like an aircraft carrier. The disciples aren't on uh, any sort of destroyer that's super stable. They're on like your typical fishing boat, which was basically uh, a little bit like 26 feet long. So imagine, you know, like 10 yards and it's shorter than 10 yards. It was about uh, six to seven feet wide, so not very wide. And it's supposed to fit like 15 people, okay? So it's not uh, an incredibly stable boat, uh, especially for uh, a windstorm and these waves. Um, And so, uh, yeah, the disciples, they start freaking out. 
They start freaking out, and they say, uh, you know, they, they wake Jesus up, and they say, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care? And at worst, the disciples are going to flip over in a boat and probably eventually get, you know, cast over to the shore uh, if someone else didn't pick them up. There's lots of traffic uh, on the Sea of Galilee, uh, you know, but they are freaking out. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And so Jesus does something crazy and totally unexpected because the disciples are sitting here and they've got buckets and they are just going to town, like trying to shove all this water out of the boat, not a whole lot of room. Uh, And then what happens is just something just mind-blowing. It's something that is not unexpected, but still a little, you're like, whoa, that's interesting. Jesus just speaks to the sea. He speaks to the wind and he speaks to the rain and the storm. And he just says, peace, be still. He doesn't call in the name of God. In the name of God, be still. He does it himself. And that is something very, very different than what the people of Israel were expecting from their Messiah. Because the people of Israel were expecting, um, for lack of a better term, a Messiah who would come to make Israel great again. They were expecting political upheaval. They were expecting a Messiah who would come. Jesus is already fulfilling a lot of these things that Messiah would do. I've come to preach liberty to the captives. I've come to heal the sick. Uh, I've come to preach good news to the poor. I've come to cast out demons. And he's doing all of that. But the way he's doing this is very, very different from what I think the people of Israel expected. So let's go back again and let's see a little bit of just just some foreshadowing, all right? Just some really good foreshadowing by Mark up until this point. Uh, Jesus uh, is healing many people in Mark chapter one. uh, And on the Sabbath, he uh, casts out, uh, or this isn't on the Sabbath, but he casts out this unclean spirit. um, And... It's just so interesting because in Mark, you have this idea called the messianic secret. Jesus will heal somebody, send someone off and say, hey, don't tell anyone about who I am. Because Jesus is going to conceal who he is until the right moment or until a series of moments. And uh, so this, this demon-possessed man comes up and he asks Jesus, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus is casting out demons not by any power other than his own being. And that is very, very different from what anybody had ever seen on earth. Uh, Jesus continues healing many people and uh, he does so on the Sabbath because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is, uh, there's a man with a withered hand and the Pharisees are sitting here waiting to see, is Jesus gonna do this on the Sabbath? Is this gonna happen? And it does because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Not, not, there, no regular man gets to be Lord of the Sabbath. There's something very different about Jesus. Uh, in chapter two, Jesus heals a paralytic. Another uh, incredible story. I love this story so much. You have this idea of uh, just this paralyzed guy who had friends, which was rare, um, and he totally depended on these friends to take care of him. And so he's on this, this rug and they just, each of them lift a corner, they carry him to the roof and they lower him down. And that's such a great picture of who we're supposed to be to each other as friends and brothers and sisters. But what makes it even better is that they lower this dude into uh, the house where Jesus was preaching. And Jesus says, because of the faith of the friends, not even his own faith, but the faith of his friends, he says, 
Son, your sins are forgiven. And that's something very, very different that the people would not expect because they're expecting a healing. And the Pharisees get super upset about this because they say, they make it about as clear as you can get before chapter four here. But who is Jesus? They say, uh, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? This Jesus is very different than the man they were expecting. Let's fast forward to uh, where we are now. We get to chapter three, where he is teaching from that authority that no one else has ever had. He's preaching in parables, which was a messianic prophecy from Isaiah chapter six, verses nine and 10. Uh, And then you get to this storm. And the disciples are sitting here saying, don't you care that we're perishing? They're scooping water out. And Jesus says, peace be still. And they say, whoa, who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. And the Bible is filled with scriptures about this because you have to understand what does this water and storm and wind represent throughout the scriptures. And it represents just total chaos. Remember in Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and without void. Uh, and there's this, uh, just, you know, emptiness, but there's this strange waters, these primordial chaotic waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Even in, this is Israelite culture and Babylon, pretty much every culture up to this point um, has uh, this idea of a symbolism with water and chaos with wind and chaos, because who can control water? Imagine, I've got these buckets right here. I'll use them a little bit, but you know, you can't really do, you can't do what you want with water, right? Water just slips through your hands and you can't do anything with it. What about the wind? You can't just capture wind. You can't just do what you want with wind. Um, These things are, are highly symbolic uh, for chaos in the ancient Near East and in the Greek. Think about uh, the Odyssey, right? That uh, I don't know if you've ever read Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, but uh, that's important because uh, you have what is, uh, you know, Odysseus is just rolling out there and the sea is just chaotic. He can't handle it. Um, These things are very important. Uh, I think about uh, Job chapter 28, but the thing uh, about these chaos uh, and what they represent is that God alone can handle the sea. Hear these words from uh, Job chapter 28 verses, uh, I'll start at 23. Uh, God understands the way to it and he knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Uh, When he gave the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. So the scriptures attribute power over the water and wind to God alone. I mean, hear these words from from Psalm chapter 107. I'll start at just verse 25 to 30. Uh, For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and they went down to uh, the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. 
I mean, this is very, very intentional. Uh, Jesus, who you have to imagine as a disciple, seeing, I mean, I'm following this guy around and he's doing a lot of great things. There's other prophets and other people that we have stories about who have done great things, but no one has ever done anything like this. But there's some things I want you to notice about the disciples. We give them a bad rap, okay? But you have to understand, like, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. Okay, I don't know if you realize the power that you have as a redeemed person who has believed in Jesus. Now you have the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why we can even comprehend anything that I'm saying. But the disciples don't have that, so we can cut them a break. But I just want you to look at their posture. I want you to see, and this is uh, it's just important for um, you know people that collapse, like, oh, just don't worry, because Jesus is in your boat when the storms come. Sure. But we need to understand some things first because we do this extremely dangerous thing where we look at what Jesus does without seeing who he is. We look and see what he does rather than see who he is. And when we do that, we are entering into very dangerous territory because if you carry that to its very end, if you are calling upon the name of Jesus because of what you think he can do, then you end up with this life where nothing is transformed. Nothing is, uh, you, you just still want the same things you wanted before you knew Jesus. You're just going through a different butler to get it. Whenever you look at Jesus for what he does and without looking at who he is, then you're just going to a different, to a different bellhop to get what you want. And that is not what being a Christian is. And that's how I live my life for a long time, for like my first 18 years of my life. That's how I lived, even though like I prayed a prayer and I was baptized when I was eight. I still didn't recognize who Jesus was. And you cannot separate the two. And that's what makes Jesus so incredible is that he's the only person on earth who has ever lived where you did not have to distinguish who he was from what he did. With us, you must, because we are sinners. We have to distinguish who we, what we do from who we are. And praise be to Jesus by his blood that we get the grace of that. We have such grace that distinguishes what we do from who we are. And then not only that, but it transforms who we are and leads us into a new life of what we do. Things that are totally, every little menial task is totally, incredibly, eternally meaningful. Everything we do, what we do with our finances, what we do with our computers and our time on the internet can be totally meaningful because we have believed in who Jesus is. This Jesus is not just another prophet. It's just, he's not just another dude out there who got a little tired and woke up. I mean, he woke up and he commanded the seas and the waves and the wind and the storm. And he said, peace be still. And they obeyed. That's who Jesus is. Jesus, the one born of the Virgin Mary the one born without uh, any, you know, human Y chromosome like that. The one born of the virgin. Uh, this Jesus is, uh, he's the one who is fully God and fully man. The church had a little trouble uh, for a while trying to, de to describe, how are we supposed to describe the person of Jesus? Because he's not half man, half God because then you don't have like the full divinity that belongs in the Trinity. And so you had a couple of camps of people. So you had um, the Gnostics who largely uh, held to this thing called docetism. Okay, if you wanna write that down, muy importante, as our brothers and sisters south of the border say. Uh, docetism means like to seem or just to appear. They believed that Jesus was fully divine, but he wasn't human at all because to be made human is not uh, fitting for God. 
uh, because you know God doesn't change. He can't be made, he can't be human. That's not fitting for God. So he was fully divine and just appeared or seemed to be human. Okay, well, there's a lot of problems there because if Jesus wasn't human, how can I be redeemed? How can my person, how can my physical body be redeemed if Jesus isn't human? Uh, a theologian by the name of Gregory of Nazianzus uh, has a famous saying, uh, what is not assumed is not healed or redeemed. If Jesus doesn't assume humanity, humanity is not redeemed. So, you know, away with the Gnostics. On the other side, uh, we have a problem with the Arians, all right? The Arians believe that Jesus was totally human, but was not fully divine. He did a lot of divine things, but was definitely not God in the flesh, Okay. Well, if we have, uh, we have problems there too, because what is the blood of Jesus worth if he's not fully divine? Who, wh- why did, what does Jesus, what distinguishes Jesus from the other prophets aside from like he didn't sin? Yeah, that's, that's always a good thing. Um, you know, but what, what does it mean uh, for us to have a savior who isn't fully divine? And so we have to do away with the Arians too. And we come to this point where we say, Jesus is one person, with two natures. This is like the orthodox Christian way to describe Jesus. One person, two natures. One person with a fully human nature and one person uh, who is the one and the same person with a fully divine nature. All right, so for all of you budding theologians out there wondering how do I describe Jesus, that's how you do it. One person, two natures. With God in the Trinity, the way we describe that is three persons, one usia, one substance. Okay, so Jesus is one person, two natures. This one person is one of the persons in the Trinity who is of one godly substance. Okay, so sorry, kind of took you off the rails uh, into theology land on that one, but it's gonna be important for you to know um, because the storms of life are coming and you need to know who Jesus is. That is what's gonna carry you through the storm. Because if you look at the disciples, I just, I want to just look at the posture here. And this is where I'll, I'll land the plane. Thank you for flying with me. Okay. But I want you to notice the disciples posture because the disciples posture reminds me of Jeremiah chapter two. Uh, what they do is they just, they have these buckets, uh, whatever they might have. And they just, they're, they're doing everything they possibly can to save themselves. All right. And Jeremiah chapter two, uh, verses 13 and 14, um, passage where Jeremiah is, casting judgment upon Judah because of their faithlessness to God. A very graphic chapter, but it's really important couple of verses in there uh, where uh, God is saying unto Judah through the prophet Jeremiah, two evils you have done. You have turned away from me, the living God, and you have dug for yourself your own cisterns, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. And that's what the disciples are doing here. They've got their own cistern here to try to scoop this water out of the boat back into the sea to save themselves. And they've got Jesus in their boat and they don't recognize who Jesus is yet. If they knew who Jesus was, they could say, Jesus, please get up and calm the storm. That would be awesome. And then you can go right back to sleep. But they don't recognize who Jesus is. They've only seen what he does. And we do the same thing all the time. We just look at what Jesus does and say, Jesus, heal me. Jesus, heal me. Gee, we, we, when we see only what Jesus does, we, we sit here and we say, Jesus, mm, Jesus, I just don't know if I'm gonna have enough money 
I don't know, uh, you know, I'm in a major right now, but I just, I don't know. And so, you know, Jesus, I've seen what you do, but, you know, please help me, Jesus. And Jesus is going to say to you, fear not. Don't be anxious for tomorrow, for God takes care of the lilies and the sparrows. Won't he also take care of you? And I didn't know that that bubble sound was going to happen, but we'll just roll with it. It's great. Um, you know, there are times uh, where we will sit here and, uh, and we'll say to ourselves, Jesus, I, you know, I'm in this relationship right now and it's borderline abusive. It's borderline abusive. And uh, what I need you to do is just heal me and I need you to heal the other part of this relationship. Um, that's what we do when we just see what Jesus does rather than who he is. And Jesus is going to say to you, get the heck out of that relationship. Oh my gosh, get out of that. Because Jesus has something greater for you than abusive relationships. And he has something greater for you than, uh, than guilt and shame that might be cast upon you by another human being. Because Jesus knows who you are. And Jesus has said, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And we'll just keep listening to that. That can be your reminder, okay? That can be your reminder of who Jesus is, okay? And so some of us are gonna sit here and we're gonna say, Jesus, you know, my digital life and my physical life aren't really matching up. And so I've seen what you can do. I've seen what you can do. But Jesus, my spiritual life doesn't even make sense with my digital or physical life. And so when you only see what Jesus does, you throw that bucket in there. And Jesus will, will say unto you, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, some of us uh, have struggled, and part of my story, I, you know, I'm not um, ashamed or scared to tell you is my former addiction to pornography and how the Lord has redeemed me from that. It's been an amazing, amazing uh, story. Um, it's because I have men in my life like John who've helped. Uh, they've been God's hands and feet in my life for redeeming me from that. But some of you are sitting here tonight and you're saying, Jesus, Jesus, I know what you can do. I know that you can heal. I know that you can save. I need you to just take away, uh, take away the computer screen, take away this, uh, just take away this guilt and shame. Jesus, I know what you can do. And that's what you do whenever you just look and you, you just look at what Jesus can do and you're just taking your own bucket, your own cistern and trying to correct the symptoms of a problem that goes much deeper than just what your eyes think. Because what Jesus is gonna say unto you is I'm coming again to make a new creation. And even now, it's not about just not looking at whatever on the computer, not objectifying your brothers and sisters. It's about being completely and totally transformed. And Jesus will say, look unto me. Don't look at the screen. You look unto me and you know who I am. Even as Moses in the wilderness lifted the bronze serpent in the air so that Israel could look and be healed, Jesus was lifted in Calvary. And he says, look and live. Look unto the right hand of God where Jesus has ascended to his throne and his kingdom from where he intercedes on behalf of us every moment of our lives. 
Jesus isn't in the process of curing our symptoms. He's curing the disease. He's in the process of making us uh, much more distinguished from what we do by transforming who we are. Because he is transforming us from who we are into what he is. And what he is is what we will be. So you can look unto the right hand of God and hope. And how do I know who Jesus is? Because I've seen him at Calvary. Because Jesus, even though he's in this boat asleep on the cushion, he set his face to Jerusalem. He knows what's coming and he knows what he must do. And he's done it. And that's the great victory. He's done it. He paid the price for us. He uh, has taken our sin and he's taken what our sin demands, namely the, the legal demand for death. And he's taken these things and it's been nailed to the cross, not just because of what Jesus did, but because of who he is. Because this isn't just a normal man being crucified on the cross. This is God in the flesh. What king leaves his throne for his people? Not just to fight for his people, but to die for his people. What, uh, when we think about covenants, you know, what God makes a covenant with his people that he knows they can't keep and then becomes his own covenant partner within the covenant to carry his people through. It's our God who in Exodus 34 attested of himself, the Lord, the Lord, gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression to the third and the fourth generation, but by no means clearing the guilty who will not repent. That's who our God is and that's who our savior is. And so in the storms of your life, you do have Jesus in your boat, but it's not about what he can do. It's about who he is. And it's about looking at who he is and knowing man, who is this man that he doesn't even need to be distinguished from what he does. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us. We trust who you are. We trust everything that you've done for us. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters tonight that you would transform us, that we wouldn't be people who are looking for the same things that we looked for before you redeemed us. Continually transform us, give us new affections, Help us to believe you even when we don't believe. Help us to know that the one who has witnessed everything from the beginning and the end has attested, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus.